Avengers, assemble. In the wake of Endgame, some were lost, others regained. They're good. What happens next? Stay tuned, true believers, as we try to find out. Peter Melnick. Graphic designer, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Upstate New York radio announcer in the Sullivan Catskills with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. Ready? It's time for a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Chris Potter, the arguably only voice of Gambit. You're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode and introducing our very special guest co-host and special guest, it's, it's a lot of special to this, isn't it? There's really? four people involved in this, so why don't we it's just a battle get started? Royal. Well, before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode, we want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on them, our social medias. Let's skip the escarole, just get to the rigmarole. Come on. <laughs> Escargot? No. No. Go, go on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Marvelists. Go on Twitter and Instagram at The Marvelists. Go on follow ugh. Go and follow us individually on social media. Easy for me to say. Unfollow. Un Oops. How dare you, sir. Go on Facebook at facebook.com slash Peter Melnick Podcaster. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Peter Melnick. But remember, like Reckless Eric probably would have said if he Ooh. was you know, what he's a punk musician eddie jeez louise simons this is not a music podcast oh, oh but all the references we make <laughs> anyway i digress there's only one place in the whole wide world to find mr e wilson and that is on instagram at eddie 9193 and additionally you can find this show in a wide variety of streaming platforms Available for all iOS and Android devices, and these include Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, Podbean, SoundCloud, Spotify, among many others. If you can wrangle and wrestle up an RSS feed, Yamo be there. Michael McDonald, Eddie. Yeah, and James Ingram, thank yeah, you. Sure. He gets, the, <laughs> he gets the primary credit. Come on. Yes, but well, that's what a fool believes, Eddie. Stop. <laughs> Oh, there's going to be so many shoehorned music references, believe me. But you can also find us on iTunes, where you can rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you're ever so inclined, please leave a five-star review. But remember, Eddie. I'm trying so <laughs> desperately not to, but it comes up every podcast episode. It sure does. Go. <gasps> Sorry. Are you trying to pass a kidney stone? No, it was lunch. It's all good. Well, anyway. Four stars or below is like the ice cream machine at McDonald's. It just does not work because, you know, they're cleaning the ice cream machine and, you know, it's broken again. <laughs> no, it's just me repeating the same tired joke. Uh, now, Eddie. Yes. This is a international call. We have a bunch of different lines going through, through the tin cans and strings. It's an N, international, oh, not oh, A. Oh, sh excuse me, Mr. Grammar man is on the duty. <laughs> you said duty. But I digress. Uh, we are joined, first off, with a special guest co-host, Daiko. Just to point out, Dai is an all-things Gambit aficionado. Di, hello. Oh, hi. How's everyone doing? Okay, good. Better now, I think. Thanks for being here. And dealing with that <laughs> arduous <laughs> intro. Yeah. <laughs> and we are also joined on the other end the of the other other attend. We are joined on the other other end of the tin can string with one of the voices of my childhood from X-Men the Animated Series, Chris Gambit Potter. Chris, hello. Wow. <laughs> that was... Uh... So spot on with long that. Train, a long train runner. <laughs> and they had the doobies again. 
<laughs> I think we ought to pass that one around. Oh, Is my. Is that where we're going with uh, this today? Die if you want. You can really? do a Doobie Brothers reference, too. <laughs> I just did. You can all counters all yours. All right. Alrighty. So it's, I it's can't, I can't I can't hear Die. She must be living on the fault line right now. Oh my or... god. <laughs> Is she in California? Picking it up in California. Yeah, that was better. Okay. Oh, man. <laughs> man. So you guys do a Doobie's talk show or That's podcast. what it seems like this, this time. This is fantastic. <laughs> Have you had Pat Simmons on? <laughs> No, but you're way too kind and presumptuous. We we appreciate that. Peter, put the coffee down and let's go with question number one. It's the cliche question, but how did you get your start in the realm of voice acting? Well, it, I think my probably the start came off of my career, the, my budding career um, in theater and then in, initially in music. So you did hit a nerve there. Um, and... That sort of played into commercials, as it does for most performers, and particularly performers like me who were living in Canada at the time. Um, we sort of had to be qualified for every medium. And um, so the start came from an opportunity. And uh, I got a call from my agent and it just mentioned to me that it, this audition was uh, was available, and if, if I was interested or would be able to go in and read, and there was no real information about uh, the, the series at the time, we weren't told what it was called, and just that it was potentially a new Fox animated series. So that was how it started, um, and then the rest sort of played out. Was it the first time, Chris, that you'd done something animated? And last. And last. Different than anything yeah. else, would you say? Yeah, well, it was memorable. Um, and for me, it, it, it's, I'm amazed, actually, today, after all of those years, how just, just what legs that, the, uh, that initial animated series had and how it spawned uh, so many other, um, well, the Marvel world in general. Uh, with at the time in the '90s, I, I I think it really spawned the birth of of a lot of some many more animated series with Fox uh, as this as that decade went on, and it also uh, clearly opened the door to the films, and um, which I had some experience with as well. Uh, we can talk about that if it's of interest. Oh yeah, definitely um, go right into that. Sure. Um, well, no, I did. I did after all of the years of doing the the X Men animated series. Um, I was called into audition for the first movie, um, but to play Cyclops, and and I I went in and I met with them and I, the whole time thinking I don't I don't really want to play Cyclops. I I want to play Gambit, and but Gambit I found out wasn't in the movie. So we had the initial meeting, and I remember that uh, the director, Brian Singer, poked his head in in a video camera and um, kind of gave me a up and down and then look, and we continued the meeting. He disappeared, and it never went any further. 
I found out that I was probably too old for for Cyclops, <laughs> and obviously too old for Brian Singer. The way things had turned out for him, <laughs> but, but uh, wow, <laughs> A plus, well, sir, A plus. <laughs> hey, you know what? Uh, I can't say it on air. Anyway, um, shame on him. So yeah. Uh, anyway. I was always very excited about the opportunity to get in and hopefully audition for the role of Gambit. But the years ticked by, <laughs> and now, you know, we'd have to have a visit Gambit in the bayou, <laughs> maybe from his rocking chair. And he might, his, his powers may be a little deleted. Maybe he just threw cards to heat up his oatmeal. But <laughs> can't be in the rocking chair, but still has that savoir faire. I love but, this. Yeah, but he still I has the ladies. Perfect. The ladies are still calling. Yeah, <laughs> um, no, I gotta say, too, if they can make that, it up to the porch in their walk. Yeah, at, at Los Angeles Comic Con, I remember distinctly, you know, standing in in the uh, hall and the panel for the series was happening, and a guy behind me, you know, when when everyone was being introduced. Um, with the lineup, he looked at you and he said, damn, the dude even looks like Gambit in real life. So I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Wow. That's cool. What year was that, Con? Oh, it was last year. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Back before Christmas. It was, I gotta say, that was my first experience with, I should say, my first experience in this um, decade with a Comic-Con. I did attend a couple of Comic-Cons early in my career in the 90s when I was starring on the Kung Fu series with David Carradine. And um, they weren't the same experience uh, as I had at this initial one in L.A. this past year. Um, They kind of freaked me out back then. I was a younger man in a different headspace, and I had a very, very busy schedule back then. And uh, when I was hesitant to get involved again, when I got asked, I went in and then uh, walked into that L.A. Comic-Con. And, I mean, they say that Disneyland is is the happiest place on Earth, but I think those Comic-Cons are the happiest place on Earth. Oh, yeah. I, I, I couldn't believe the energy coming out of that place. It, and there was a lineup. All down, it was La Cienega, around the block of the of the convention center. It was it was so impressive. But I can remember that I, at the end of the weekend, I thought I I did not have one single single negative experience at this event. Um, and it really changed my perspective on it. Not to mention that I hadn't seen the other members of cast members for years. And uh, also Larry was there. Um, so it was all positive. And I'm, I'm really thankful that I went. And I think it, it sort of opened the door for me possibly doing this in the, in the future, barring a pandemic. <laughs> I think I, I kind of look forward to, to doing it. I had no idea that there were that. Really, I truly did. I, I mean, in our in our industry, you know that, especially in television and film, 
and animation, you know that you're reaching an audience. But in your world, uh, you, you don't really feel the, the impact that that has. It's not an instant sort of gratification like performing for an audience in music or in theater. So it's a kind of a delayed effect. And um, uh, sure, I was used to it from television shows, meeting up with, if we call them fans or you know, viewers that had been affected. And there are some amazing moments that happen amongst um, those interactions with people. It bring tears to your eyes. But I didn't realize that about, about the X-Men. I honestly didn't. I just thought it was a cartoon. I knew it did well. I knew it, it played to an audience. And quite frankly, at the time, I didn't have anything when I was performing um, the role. I didn't really have anything to compare it to uh, success-wise. So I didn't realize what a deep, what a deep comic it was, meaning that you did not insult the intelligence of the audience uh, in in the writing. And I think that there was just a dose of genius in that from the beginning of that series that I was unaware of until after the fact. And that all came from Larry Houston. He's, he, he is the genius behind the, that, that stroke of genius that, that made that show magical. And if you've ever talked to Larry, you realize that you might, you might as, at least from my perspective, you might as well not talk about any, any comic, any, any Marvel characters, maybe in any comic at all. If, don't pretend to to know anything about them because he knows everything about yes. every comic. As we so found out in the episode we spoke to Larry about, yeah, Larry Houston. For your part, though, Chris, when you had to do the work of the voicing Gambit, were you asked to, or did you take it upon yourself to do a little research in this character, or just like, all right, here are your lines, here's how you're supposed to say them, and do it with this kind of a little twang accent, whatever? Well, it, it, all I was given at the time was that I believe this was project was called the um, the X project or something like that and that this character was Cajun he spoke with a Cajun accent and yes I was just given the lines to read and like any cattle call back in those days you would we would uh, meet up and you bump into two or three other guys you knew on their way in or out and you would you'd, you'd, you know you'd, you'd do your research so my research on that basically was knowing that the Louisiana, the Southern Nolan's accent was a combination of, of Southern, Southern American dialect and Cajun, uh, French Canadian Patois, that there was a blend and that that's where some of the French uh, slang and dialect came into play into the, the, um, the, the, the Southern accent, the twang. Um, so I, I just blended them and, and had a, you know, a, a loose, as, a, as having grown up in Canada, I had a loose understanding of, of Canadian French, French Canadian, um, that I, I just, I just did a hybrid and it seemed to work for them. But also I, I, I think at the time I understood, uh, there's a process behind any building any character, and hopefully that the 
the writing is good enough in anything that you do or are trying to um, any role you're you're trying to compete for that you see that there's enough in there that you can flesh out the root of the, the character one thing about gambit to me was it was clear that he grew up with he was raised by thieves but he was ultimately not a not a criminal mind he he wasn't a thief by heart he was uh it was he was he was raised by thieves but he he really was an outsider to that community he he also just wanted to be loved and it's just how he went about it and that's pretty pretty a character that all of us have possibly met in our lives and that's the role he filled in in the x-men at the time um he was roguish he, he was a product of his environment but he was a good person inside at least that's the way i tried to portray him he just didn't quite know how to go about it and he was socially awkward or uncomfortable so he preferred to stay out of the, the mainstream and he made him a bit of a loner um but he was charming as hell and you wanted to uh see more of him and um he had issues with belladonna as a character so he was sort of trapped into marriage there and he really didn't experience true love until he fell in love with a person he couldn't he shouldn't in rogue there's and, a double um, i like that double rogue reference very good um and uh that again to me is brilliant writing in, in that 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 conflict is um all of this in in under the umbrella of animation or comics and yet really touching on true life and uh, so the character was to me was very well defined and there was a path and um the rest of it was all make believe mm-hmm. um it's hard to come up with a way to actually be hit by a laser beam <laughs> and 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 thrown 200 yards into a car when you're in the studio and they say okay and action and <laughs> You're trying to muster up some kind of reaction to that event, um, you know, and make it real. But um, I think Larry Houston did a great job of giving us enough truth inside those characters to to be able to to seek it out when we performed them. And he was also, or he or they that were involved in casting, were very fortunate that in uh, trying to save money by coming to Canada and looking, you know, Saban was so cheap that um, once they, I mean, they changed the animation in year four. And once it got, it always, money always gets in the way. And unfortunately, we were horribly paid to do it, um, which made it hard to commit because you can have people telling you how great you are or how successful you are, but if they're not showing you the love financially, then it becomes somewhat of a, an insult. And um, traditionally, a lot of productions have come up to Canada to do that. 
uh, it all comes down to the money. But in the what they got in the case of the X Men was a group of people that ended up playing those characters that at that time were tremendously talented in one field or another. I believe Cal Dodd was already a very successful musician and he had a variety show at the time called Circus. Great looking guy and he was, you know, he had a good career and Lenore had had a strong career and had a, uh, Chris Britton and George Buza, they, they had um, theater, television and film careers up here. They're very versatile uh, performers right across the board and they really got their they really got their money's worth when they they took that route. It worked out well for them, so they saved money and they got their their money's worth. Um, so it, it was kismet, I think. You know, it was a magical moment. But I but I got to say that Larry Houston, w- without that kind of commitment and that kind of uh, genius, you know, without the Bruce Springsteen, the rest of the band doesn't isn't as good. <laughs> yeah. And um, if that, you know, if that could be my analogy, Larry was our Bruce up front, and we had just a heck of a band backing him up. So, I would say uh, Cal Dodd is definitely the uh, Clarence Clemens. He probably can play saxophone. <laughs> Swing and <laughs> <in> his <Peter. laughs> He probably, he probably can. Well, maybe I should have used the Doobie Brothers analogy. <laughs> we can expand Larry from was, there. Larry was our, our. What? Our Pat Simmons. The, you know, the rest of us. See? All right. I really hope our okay. audio engineer, John, has a field day with Doobie Brothers uh, clips in this <laughs> episode. I really do. Probably could, although I was going to drop in something to Chris that you said about you know, with the relationship that Gambit had but couldn't. I went right away to the Rolling Stones. You can't always get what you want. So, boom. There you go. Well, Beautiful. Just well that, that nailed it. Yeah. The experiences that we had... Um, once we found out that we were involved in this show, uh, were that's when the stories began and the and the hilarity ensued because the first years of the first, especially the first season of filming or recording that was a shit show in in a fun way. But if you can believe they put all of us in one studio, um, I think for the first few episodes um, when you had characters like. Well, like Norm, who played Cyclops, and Cal, all of them, men and women. Uh, we had so much mic spill that we just couldn't. And we had a group of A-type personalities. Nobody could shut up. So the laughter ensued, the mics spilled, and I don't know how they got through you know, mixing all that. But uh, we ended up doing the, the voices individually. I used to do mine at lunch because I was filming 14-hour days back then, sometimes 16-hour days, believe it or not, filming Kung Fu. I was going to say, uh, we had uh, Christopher Daniel Barnes on, you just mentioned, you know, you guys did your uh, line reads individually. He mentioned that, you know, they did, like, you know, an old-school radio show where they're all crammed together in the same booth. Yeah, that's what we did, yeah. That's exactly what we did, and it it doesn't work. <laughs> not like an old-time radio show, because we we just were stepping on each other, but there was different levels in people's performance. So you've got somebody across the room spilling into somebody else's mic. And so it, it was a challenge for them that they changed quickly. And that's but, something, uh, yeah, from the beginning, go you got you got used to each other after some period of time. And uh, I don't know, did it get easier then doing all your recordings? Maybe take a little less time to lay down the episode? 
not for me. I was always so insecure about it. I always thought I was horrible, and I was always nervous about everything that came out of my mouth. So, you know, I'd sort of say my lines, but really what I was thinking every time I finished my line or, you know, or finished the session was, was that okay? <laughs> Is that okay? And, and all it took was for a guy like uh, Cal or Norm, Norm, Norm was always trying to make an extra buck, so he he would always volunteer to do any of the small bit parts. So it seemed that he was always there every time I was doing a session. Norm happened to be there, and we would occasionally do things side by side in the studio. And he was such he's such a crack up funny guy. But he would say to me after I'd finished, he'd, he'd look at me. He said, "Is that how you're going to do it?" <laughs> <laughs> he just preyed on my insecurity, but which is ironic because Gambit comes off as probably the most secure, confident, cocky guy you could you could ask for in the group, you know, full of confidence. But uh, actually, I think that's kind of a key to his character that he uh, people that are that way tend tend to be covering their lack of confidence. So it worked for Gambit. So, um, you know, piggybacking on that, that whole topic, you know, Eric and, and Julia Lewald, the you know, friends of the podcast, they wrote a, a book called Previously on X-Men. And, you know, in, in the book, they discussed a number of things um, during the recording process and production process in general. And um, they share a lot of anecdotes, you know. And, you know, that said about Norm, is there anybody on the cast that you bonded with in particular? Did you even have time to really, to really become friends with anyone or... Any funny stories that you might want to share? Um, well, I mean, no, because it was such a flash in time for me. As I said, I often did those sessions on my lunch hour. Um, I did. I, I've always made a habit in the thirty some odd years I've done this to to, uh, to meditate or sleep, basically, on my lunch hour. Uh, to try to save my brain for the afternoon dialogue that I, you know, back when I had a lot of heavy dialogue, um, a lot of pages. I don't know if the dialogue was that heavy, but the, there was a lot of memorizing. So I used to, instead of taking that break, I'd zip down to the studio and do these sessions. So a lot of it is a blur to me looking back. And, and, but it's a good question because what I do remember is, is the fun. Um, and I do remember that there were, in the room, often, especially the first year when we did that sort of radio play all in a, a booth together, uh, a lot of the others, the, the guys in particular, were mimics. You know, they could they could um, impersonate famous people. So one one point I remember there was a Jack Nicholson uh, impersonation needed, and of course Norm raised his hand and did Jack Nicholson right away, and then Cal raised. Kelsey, that's not Nicholson. This is Nicholson. He did one. And then out of the blue, somebody else did one who I didn't expect. It was the best one of all. And, you know, it was just fun to be around uh, that energy and that, that talent with, the, with that group of people. And, you know, I think for me, that was one of the best memories I have was, was the interaction with other, with others. And, um, you know, it, after all of these years getting back together and, and meeting up with 
the group, it um, it's really been it's really been fun. Things haven't changed, you know. I think that's another reason I've enjoyed um, doing a few of these comic cons because um, we have fun together, and people don't change. Yeah. I mean, speaking of, I, I I don't know. I, I'm sure I could speak for other you know comic book readers in general, but you know. Your team, your your voices were so embedded in our childhoods, and and you know just from watching the show on Saturday mornings that we carried it through you know our our lifetimes as fans of not only Marvel but of X Men, and, um, and you know how wildly popular the '90s show was and how it still is, and it, it and people still find it so beloved. But your voices were so iconic and continue to be that you know uh, people read the books themselves to this day, hearing that circle of voices, I mean, how does that make you feel, having that sort of impact? Well, that's what a good Doobie Brothers song do for you, too. (laughs) (laughs) It's called imprinting. And um, I think think that's what you're talking about. See, that's the part that's hard for me to believe. Uh, It's not hard for me to hear. I mean, it's wonderful to hear, but it's hard for me to believe that because we weren't at, on the listening end, we were on the delivery end. And I completely understand that. And I, I would use music as an analogy. There are certain songs that bring back that you're imprinted on early in life. And at, at, at impressionable ages, that, that I, I total, totally believe that. And I do run into those X-Men fans who say that very thing. They say, you know, you got me through a really tough time in my childhood, or uh, without the X Men every day uh, for me, I, you know, it, it gave me the confidence or the relief or something, the escape. Um, so it's wonderful to hear it. I just don't. It's hard for me to feel responsible for having done it. Does that make any sense? Um, because I was just. You know, one character in a in a good story that resonated with a lot of people, and uh, but I'm proud of it. I'm proud to hear that the effect that it's had. And for you know, for myself again, it's it's I've noticed this with certain voiceover actors. You will hear their regular speaking voice, and you won't hear the character's voice in it. And I feel like that's a sign of a great voice actor. You know, like, for example, Mel Blanc, you know, you'll hear, like, certain characters that he would do, and then you hear his regular speaking voice, which was more akin to a uh, Bugs Bunny, you know, kind of voice. But I'm listening to your voice, and I can't hear the Gambit voice, but then you'll do, like, certain lines, and you're just like, I then hear it. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I don't know what the point of that was, but... Gambit always talked a little lower. His register was lower, you know, so softer. And he, his, uh, that's part of, it's part of the job. Yeah. Um, but it also, the difference between a Mel Blanc is almost, he, he almost does voice effects. Um, if, if I could call it that, like he, he, he really is very versatile and it was very versatile in his, his talent and exceptionally talented that way. Um, for for me, I I, I think I, you're not always you're sort of as good as your last job, I suppose. But um, you know, I never really ever was asked to do other 
other uh, cartoon voices after that. And I think partially because I just wasn't available, uh, for one, to explore it. But um, you might be surprised just at how versatile some of us are that way. Um, if we have to, you know, if you have to um, raise your register or do a voice two octaves higher or, two, or an octave lower, what, whatever, that that's part of your gift. Right. But um, Gambit's voice was for Gambit. And, but I understand what you mean, that occasionally certain phrases or certain tones might come out and you go, oh, there it is. But um, it was also in the 90s. So I was 25 years younger anyway. So, um, and your voice can change over, over time as well with that. But, uh, but no, he's, he's in there. I actually, we did a read through in, um, New Orleans back in, in January, uh, at a convention. And we read one of the original scripts and, uh, it was fun because we had Cal doing Wolverine and I was Gambit and George was doing Beast and Chris Britton, Mr. Sinister. And then of course, Lenore was there and it was, it was the Gambit uh, script where the tithing um, script where he goes back to the bayou and Belladonna's involved and all that. So uh, I was, it was fun to hear all those voices come out of those guys again. And the same with, same with Lenore. Lenore's, sexy southern accent <laughs> popped up there it was hadn't heard it for years she certainly doesn't use that as a minister of parliament in <laughs> eastern canada <laughs> that we know she's talking of. more like that we know probably of. talking more like this justin you know, trudeau should with that <laughs> with the irish <laughs> by the, that east coast lilt that we have in canada the irish roots um, anyway. So, uh, you know, talk of the town and the rumor mill is that Disney Plus is, you know, exploring the potential for reviving the series. Are you, have you heard anything about it? Are you interested in, in you know, stepping in the gambler's shoes again? Uh, <laughs> how does that, how does that yeah. feel for you? <laughs> well, who wouldn't be? Um, of course, I think that would be fun if they did. I haven't really heard anything serious about that. Um, yeah. and I would think that is all dependent on Larry Houston. I think if he was involved in that, it would be worth doing. Um, but Larry's retired. I don't know how he feels about doing a revised version, but, um, you know, you get, you, if they recast it, then, then, you know, that, that, that wouldn't be the first time that happens is the longer you do this it's happened to me I think they're talking about doing a Kung Fu reboot and nobody's mentioned that to me I think I read it I think uh, I was recast as Will's boyfriend on Will and Grace um, by a guy that was younger so if they, if they recast Gambit it wouldn't surprise me uh, that's the business. They meaning the money and um, mm. the people behind it. But wouldn't it be exciting? Yes, if we could. I think I think everybody 
that performed in that original animated series is still with us. And, um, heck, you know, we're not that old, but uh, I've been doing the same series now on television. For, this will be our 14th year. Even through this pandemic, we're, we're starting to film next, at the end of the month. And, um, you know, I'm very thankful that I've had a, a long, steady career that way. But um, I guess what I'm getting at is that over the years, I've, I've heard about all kinds of potential activity that's never come to fruition. So I think it'd be, it'd be great for the Marvel world um, and for the fans. And I think if it was done Larry Houston style, that it would be really an important, it would be an important series to uh, redo because I think there's a lot of young people in these times that could really use it and really relate to it. So sure. Why not? I think just jumping back, Chris, uh, you mentioned a Kung Fu reboot and maybe it, it, may have come up or if it has only come up now for the first time this you heard it here maybe it should be a, a kung fu re-kick oh god <laughs> <laughs> oh sorry Eddie. was Carl, somebody talking carl douglas <laughs> cue the one hit wonder uh, let's get away from the doobies for a second <laughs> uh, it's what i do well, maybe oh, somebody's evidently. smoking them <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, that was my. Um, this is a natural a natural high thing <laughs> sir sir <Okay>. sir <laughs> All right, everybody, whoa, whoa, listen oh, to the yeah, music, Oh, yeah, whoa, okay? indeed. <laughs> I'm going to jump into what? the black water. Come on, I think uh, I think Daiko's got more stuff. Oh, yeah, no, I was, while we're talking about music and albums, how, Chris, how did your album come about, and where can I get a copy? <laughs> oh, I, don't, please, you, I don't think you could find that. What happened? I did it. <laughs> I, I, are you serious? Are you Back in the 90s, I did a CD that actually came out of the fact that I was starring on a show called Silk, Silk Stockings for uh, the USA Network. And we had been filming in a music studio in North County, San Diego. And the guy that owned the studio and I hit it off and he said, I, I started playing guitar, fiddling around when we were waiting to shoot. And I, w I always wrote my own stuff. So I was noodling away on something. And he said, you should come in and record. So one thing led to another, and I did. And I ended up really uh, enjoying the, you know, the experience of it. But uh, he wanted to market it. And I ended up asking David Carradine to come down. And we did a kind of a jam session one night. He, and David was a good musician, and he played uh, something called the Kung Fu Blues on piano. And Chad Smith from the Red Hot Chili Peppers came down and played drums in the session. And we ended up having a guy from the Little River Band play bass. And it was really, it was fun. But the guy, uh, I ended up um, getting really sick one night, and my appendix ruptured. And I waited so long to get do anything about it because my wife uh, and I had three little ones at the time and a newborn at the time. Um, we still have them. I mean, 
But they were little then. <laughs> <laughs> Traded them in. <laughs> yeah, I didn't say for a time. I said at the time. But uh, anyway, I couldn't sing for a while because my my abdomen was was open <laughs> from this emergency operation. So I had to go back a month later and do some singing. Anyway, the guy put it out as a CD. And I wouldn't, you, I don't, I hope you can't get it anywhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> and most of the songs were kind of tongue in cheek and it was fun. So I, I'm sorry, Di, to disappoint you, but um, yeah. I hope you can't get it. But if, <laughs> if I run into you sometime at yeah. a convention or something, I'd be happy to strum a tune for you. And uh, maybe that would, that would suffice. I was going to say that it just all made me want to hear it even more, but I will take that deal. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody's got to have it. Put the tracks up on YouTube. Let's have the CD Tourmaline. Come on. Well, that's what it was called. That's right. Uh, Dive? Oh, well, I mean, not to to bubble back too too far, but, you know, speaking of how diverse and... um, how diversely talented you know the cast was. Uh, I understand that you worked a lot with Catherine Disher, who was the voice of Jean Grey in the animated series, and you know you worked uh, together on, on a couple of projects. Um, yeah. Can you tell us more about that and the essentially twenty years of work history? Yeah, I love Cass. I haven't seen her for a while, but um, we worked together back then on, of course, on X Men, and she was doing a series called Forever Night. And I was doing Kung Fu, The Legend Continues at the time. And then years, many years passed. And we found ourselves on a series of movies called The Good Witch, which um, I did in my little bit of free time in the through the 2000s. We did seven Good Witch movies with Catherine Bell, playing The Witch, uh, then became a television series. And Catherine played the mayor of um, Middleton in these movies. So we, you know, we realized that we'd been kind of in each other's uh, radar for for, for, for 30 years. And I I, I think we have the same agency. So... um, but Catherine's very, very talented, and and she's had a very similar past that I've had um, within constantly working and doing work here in Canada. I, I, I did leave Canada for some time and worked in the U.S. Uh, for 10 years or so, but I came back up here basically to film a series called Wild Card with Jolie Fisher. Uh, and stayed when Heartland began in 2007, and I've been on that show since. But I, um, yeah, I run into Catherine occasionally. She hasn't been part of the uh, the reunion group, uh, but nor was I up until last Christmas. So maybe we'll be seeing her. I know she's around. To be fair, though, the idea of going to a convention and doing a photo op, you know, with yourself and Lenore would be one of the most badass things to be able to say and do at a convention. You know, you had a photo with Rogue and Gambit. I like that idea. I think you guys should do, yeah, we, do more. <laughs> yeah, we well, 
you know, hopefully we will. It, Absolutely. Um, these times have changed a lot of that interaction, but uh, they also, you know, we'll, we'll get through this and um, those times will happen again. I'm sure. I don't think it's that we've seen the last uh, convention. We possibly may not have seen the last Doobie Brothers concert either. <laughs> I've seen I've seen them. I think two times now. <laughs> well, in, in, in our area of the universe, we have Bethel Woods Center for the Arts, and they've been by us several times. I they, think they're rescheduled for next year. Actually, yeah, they have like a permanent residency there. I think pretty much. Like, you like, know, like how it used to be with the Blue Oyster Cult at the Chance in Poughkeepsie. They were always living. Oh, there. Here, now we're talking. See that? Whoa! Oh, there goes Tokyo. Go oh, go Godzilla! Hey! Whoa! <laughs> Wow. Okay. I, I'm, I'm, okay. Now you're speaking my language with with a cult. See, okay. we were uh, Eddie and I off mic yesterday. were talking about the movie Heavy Metal, and the uh, Blue Oyster Cult was heavily involved in that one as well. So, like, I'm talking about that, and like, I want to listen to that music again. I love that stuff. Oh, that those first. It was the early stuff before the Fear the Reaper cowbell shit. But, <laughs> there you go. Yes. Um, dominance and submission, and, and all of those. And Buck Dharma's guitar riffs were incredible. I I, uh, I ate that stuff up as a teenager. I love I love Blue Oyster Cult. Oh, so I think good. I stopped liking them when that when that when they came out with the Don't Fear the Reaper. But um, prior to that, they were they were they frightened me, and <laughs> I like that. So you you shied away from the stuff that became like radio hits and stuff, or yeah, oh yeah. I just realized, by the way, we're uh, recording in a radio station. I look to my left, and there's a sign for uh, Bethel Woods Center for the Arts. And yes, the Doobie Brothers are on there from the 624 2016 concert season. <laughs> Daryl Hall. Oh, no, sorry. It's Journey and the Doobie Brothers with Dave Mason mm-hmm. on 624. Dave Mason, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, a stellar lineup. You know what? This, hey, well, let's not make fun of that era. That was uh, the soundtrack of many of our lives. Mm-hmm. But. Um, they also they were they're fiercely talented people. Uh, it's just that it's old people music now, I guess. But um, you know what? I listened to everything, and uh, it was good. There was a lot of good stuff in that. And that's the kind of stuff, though. I think. Uh, well, I, me- I meant to ask before when you're talking about your song stuff going on, Chris. But the material you put out was, I would assume, of course, original. And was it more of long of a rock vein or? Yeah, I, I just, it's just that I've always, I've sort of gravitated to great music. So um, great music to me, it, it, uh, you know, I was always a big Todd Rundgren fan. I sort of, Ooh, I love choice. Uh, well, I, I love the fact that Todd is an artist and, and, and um, I've followed his entire career. He's constantly reinventing. I don't even know if he's reinventing himself. He's constantly taking his followers on a journey. Um, and you know, there's another genius, uh, in music. Um, and, 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 and then decades pass and a guy like Beck came along yeah. who reminded me of Todd as well in, in that you never got the same flavor twice, but there are dozens and dozens of, of, um, you know, genius level artists out there. And I just, I guess I tend to follow that type of person that um, is is a lifelong artist and it, 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 they're just not a commercial attraction they touch down on it occasionally 
and I suppose make a pile of money. But it's the journey of the artist that I really follow, and this is the same thing with artists and, and writers and and um, and even actors. Uh, in that I am one, um, the, the people that I, I sort of admire are are take take me on a journey throughout their career and make um, interesting choices. I think it's just part of that, the nature. There's a big part of our business. I really, I think it really changed when the internet went back when, before 96, you know, when I started, there was no internet. So 96 and beyond opened up a world where everybody wanted, it opened up a world for people that wanted to be famous. Um, there's a big difference between fame and artists. Um, sometimes those, those worlds don't, don't collide. Um, so that the people that pursue for, because they, for no other reason, they can't help it. They pursue an art form to and master it or try to in their, in their, uh, journey. Um, are people I tend to gravitate to. I, I got latch on to somebody and just watch them where they take me with what they discover. So I don't, I don't really last very long with people who have a really great song and, um, and disappear. Uh, I just admire those people with a real, a lot of longevity. Mind you, then there are the one-offs, you know, like a Paul McCartney who is just a, you know, a given born, born with talent and could play. I honestly, he could play, a, probably play a piece of tree bark and write a hit song on it, <laughs> but, um, it, it flows out of him. That's what getting back to what we're talking about. What really impresses me with, uh, a person like Larry, uh, and the people within our business. If, if you talk to Larry Houston, he, he drove this, he knew more about the X-Men than anybody at Fox, anybody that was assigned to it. You know, he used to do this thing where he would lay in characters, and I think he got this from early comic books, um, where he would he would bring other characters from the Marvel world and, and throw them into the background of our of of the show, like um, as as kind of a thread or a teaser. Um, that was designed, I think, by Stan Lee, probably to, to um, make you realize that this was a Marvel universe, you know, that there was, there was, it, this was all interconnected. And, um, like, Larry really knew his, his material. And you need that kind of person uh, if you're making a good television show or a good movie, uh, or writing a book, you, you need, you need that kind of, um, commitment to the material and knowledge and genius behind it. And then you attract, you know, you can attract good people. So that was a great thing about the X-Men. It was a bit of, but I think it, he did not in, uh, insult the intelligence of the um, younger audience. He, he wrote over there. He wrote what I think, probably Fox thought was over their heads. And it turns out all he did was attract intelligent young people. Um, he, he knew there was an audience out there for it. 
So if you guys like the X-Men, it means you were pretty smart in layman's terms <laughs> as children. <laughs> How's that? Exactly. I appreciate that. Gifted youngsters, yeah. yeah. Oh, I had a, used to, my kids growing up watched The Simpsons religiously. And I can remember a couple of times at some function with other parents being cornered by somebody. And she said to me, you let your kids watch The Simpsons? Oh, my God. I, I would never let my kids watch The Simpsons. And I, I, the whole time she was saying that, I was thinking, my if my kids watch The Simpsons, it, to me that means that they're super intelligent. <laughs> if the, they if they're watching The Simpsons and and and, and getting it, they're bright. I'm all down. I'm down with that. I'm, I'm good with it. I'm gonna let them watch it. With The Simpsons, I'm a massive Simpsons fan, and it's funny because uh, when I was in college, we ended up watching uh, Citizen Kane in our film studies class, and I remember watching it. I'm like, oh, I remember that. Oh, I remember that. I never saw a minute of Citizen Kane before that. You know how I knew all of that from Citizen Kane? Because they referenced Simpsons. it, yeah, repeatedly. <laughs> right. And it's insane. Well, don't you, don't you think that the X-Men, in a way, um, not, a, not as compared to that, but uh, that the, the storyline and the dynamics, the structure of, of, of the writing was, um, I would say, more mature than a common cartoon? Absolutely. It's, I, I, th I think it was. And it's like, it's one of those shows, you know, again, that was like during a time when the cartoons were being written for children, but for adults at the same time. And it was, it managed to find a way to bridge the in-between, you know, yourself with X-Men, uh, Christopher Daniel Barnes with Spider-Man, the animated series, Kevin Conroy with Batman, the animated series. You have three shows, the, uh, the Triforce essentially of high quality not just superhero cartoons and comic book cartoons, but cartoons in general that, yeah, it's, it was a magical time to be a fan of all of like of Saturday morning stuff. Yeah. I would you say it's missing then today or. Uh, <laughs> it's one of those, like there are shows, but like I, I'm unfortunately so out of the loop, you know, and I'm kind of bummed that out happened. about that. What about uh, the Marvel Universe right now with um, all the television shows? I'm going to field that question to Diana. <laughs> what, what How do you feel about all that? I mean, you know, it's with the timeline and, and them being able to include content and, and connections and then not being able to, it's kind of like a, it's a strange little stepping stone of, of, um, of a terrain because, you know, you know that they're all connected. You know that they're making references back and forth, but they're not necessarily exclusive. And, and I know that people had, you know, with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., for instance, they just finished, finished their series run. And, um, you know, I, I understand that they were supposed to make references to, you know, last year's Infinity War and Endgame, you know, ending, but they didn't due to time. And, and there are these, like, small little tidbits where you're, you're kind of hoping to see it go further, but it just doesn't quite do it and it, it feels more like they're they're trying to satiate the fans to a degree but they they just do it because it's convenient and it's not so much for storytelling storytelling like they they kind of did back with the cartoons you know and and i'm not too familiar with the, the home editions or any of the later you know um cartoons that have been released in the last 10 years well do you but, find a lot of people at conventions talking about those tv shows 
because I, what I seem to see at yeah. the conventions is uh, people talking are there to see, well, for instance, in Wales, uh, they were there to see Doctor Who yeah. and um, the current Doctor Who. Stuff. In L.A., they were there to see cast members from The Office, but uh, and, and Outlander was very popular um, at the time, but I didn't really see any other than us, the animated series people, um, and other animated series, even SpongeBob included, also mm -hmm. a genius show, um, was uh, a lot of representation from the Marvel world. And I, I have, I can't really comment because I haven't watched the shows, but there might be a reason for that because I watch everything. Um, I think I did audition at one point for a new Lois and Superman and Lois series that's going to be coming out uh, to play Lois's father. I didn't get it. Thank goodness. <laughs> I wouldn't. Have, I, I wouldn't have liked. I wouldn't have liked the job. You would have been at but, the distinguished competition. We don't want that. We want you at Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, anyway, it was. It was. Um, it's just been an observation. I just. To me, I think it's been a lot of. Um, quantity over quality, personally, but um, I, I, I really, I'm asking, I, I was asking uh, genuinely, is, are they onto something there uh, with, with this whole raft of Marvel shows? I would say the ones but, that, you know, heavily got a massive impact in recent memory were the Netflix series, and then, yeah. you know... <laughs> it, I could agree with that, though, you know? And it just broke my heart, because, like, they were trying their hardest to make it, make it connected to the main continuity of the movies and stuff. And the movies just, you know, like, Kevin Feige had, I guess, problems with Jeff Loeb, I believe. And they're just like, nah, we're just going to, you know, continue our pissing match. And, right. you know, they don't want to do anything. You know, uh, Diana had mentioned Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And apparently on the uh, series finale, they made reference to the Quantum Realm, which, you know, was heavily referenced in Ant-Man and the Wasp, now available on Disney+. And they were, <laughs> you know, because I'm a company man at heart. Um, and all of these different things. And a uh, friend of the show, Jeremy Conrad, goes, there's no way they can ignore the movies now, to which I... Or there's no way they can ignore Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. now, to which I responded back with a picture of uh, uh, Kevin Feige, and I go, I'll accept that challenge. So... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, that you know, you need a Larry Houston. Yeah. If you really want to resonate, yeah. like otherwise, it just comes becomes bureaucracy and watered down, and they mm -hmm. you lose sight. And it's it's hard to find that in the industry. Um, it's it's you know art versus commerce all the time. So, um, but. Uh, I was just interested. I asked the question because I, I don't, I see a lot of it cropping up and a lot of talk about uh, who's, who is that producer that's doing all those shows? Um, Jeff White? Television. Kevin Feige? Yeah. It's, yeah. It was Loeb and now Jeff it's Feige. Loeb, yeah. Well, who's the guy that does Arrow and, and uh, uh, Guggenheim? Those shows. And I think Berlant Berlanti, Greg Berlanti. Yeah, Berlanti. That's it. His, his name's everywhere on the, um, you know, on the on the casting in the sheets. And they do a phenomenal shows. job for, for those shows. Um, yeah, they do. There's obviously a big audience for it, but I, I was I was wondering about 
the quality of those shows in the eye from from the perspective of people who grew up with the characters. I know when they did the uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths uh, mega event. You know, I also had asked uh, friends, you know, right before everything, I go, is this going to be one of those where I have to watch like 8,000 tie-ins? They go, no, you can just watch the main event and you're fine. I'm like, okay, cool. Mm-hmm. And then I'm, you know, seeing clips and I feel like, you know, we mentioned this on our uh, previous episode with uh, Gabriel Iglesias and I, you know, said the idea of the multiverse, you know, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness can lead to so much. And with Crisis on Infinite Earths, you have Burt Ward reprising the role of Robin. You have um, Kevin Conroy showing up as a you know an older Bruce Wayne. You have the guy who played whatever on Arliss, you know, from uh, Batman '89. He shows up on a bench, you know, reading a newspaper with Michael Keaton really? on the cover. Oh yeah, they they reference everything, and it's like it's it's fan service, but it's also like, oh, that is so cool, guys. I love that. But, you know, like, I feel like if Marvel does it with their movies, they're going to be, they will do it, but in a way of, no, we'll do it, but we will do it in a distinguished way. You know, something like that, which, hey, more power to them. But, like, sometimes just, you know, throwing stuff to the fans and, you know, doing that is like, oh, it's so cool. It's so cool. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, I know. It's not just like Michael McDonald when he did that. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Jeez. Oh, he, he, that's how he, I guess, you know, that's the difference. That's that's his real speaking voice, and, and yet he sings the way he does. It's amazing. You just nailed it. Oh, look, Michael McDonald's singing voice. <laughs> yeah. And fun fact, by the way, on that poster next to me, Michael McDonald on 717 alongside with America. So <laughs> I think I was there for that show, actually. Oh. Oh uh, my God! Was that? It was a good show. I'm mean, tasting muskrat love. Oh, uh, America is such a good band to see live. Just for the record, they are so phenomenal. And like, it's funny. Like, there's so many songs that you don't realize are them, and you're just like, "Oh, I like that song. Oh, I like that song. Oh, oh, lonely people. I'm sad now, I but I like that song." I can do one of those PBS uh, fundraising or things. <laughs> those those infomercials where you, you know the guy from Ambrosia. Um, yeah. David Pack is trying to sell you the the sounds of the seventies. Well, later on, uh, Chris, we're going to send you a tote bag, free, complimentary, on behalf of all of us. <laughs> that is the it's gift. embroidered. It's, look at the fine stitching. Oh, I'm sorry, guys. This is probably just going to crush your 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 fan base and your ratings with all these references. To, oh, don't. Uh, <laughs> As I always lovingly say, we once got a review that says we're full of incessant dad jokes and puns, and we still got a five-star review. I'm like, well, I'll take it. <laughs> well, there's got to be a home for us somewhere. <laughs> Eddie? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so any more music references? But I think Di has more she wants to uh, throw oh, in before no. we... Uh... No, you're... You... Chris, you've done a fascinating job of, of tackling every question I had without even asking. Wow, that's great, because no, Peter said you had a lot, and I wanted to make sure we got that all in if yeah. possible. Got them all in, man. Wow. Okay. So, other stuff, Chris, that you find yourself involved with or doing, or if you, you know, given your own druthers or whatnot, would like to go into next. Oh, I love the druthers, brothers. Oh. <laughs> well, as I said, I'm, 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 you know, I've just read the forty-page protocol uh, handbook that is um, going to be our our filming future. Uh, beginning in September, 
on season 14 of Heartland, now the longest-running Canadian TV series. Take that, Lonesome Dove. Um, yeah. <laughs> We're we're yeah we're we're getting up to I think we're up in bonanza range now but um, oh my god uh, but not close to Gunsmoke I think that one really ran along long to thirty two years or something but anyway it's a it's a it's a wonderful group of people that I've worked with I started the show in two thousand seven and um, you know we film the, the primarily we film. Uh, about one third in the studio and two thirds in the Rockies, the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, and um, which is beautiful country. I, I'm very grateful for that, all of that. Uh, but um, that said, it's been a it's been a long year of wondering what is going to happen, and I'm fortunate enough to have this job to look forward to in the coming weeks. But I can say the rest of the industry, um, it isn't the same. And there's a lot of a lot of real pain going on in the performing arts. I, um, I can't imagine the musicians, the people that you know, really earn a bulk of their their living in the in the good months, playing festivals and all of the the people that you know can't attend these things. Um, it's bad enough socially for for society that they can, we can't be together in the summer, but it's it's horrible for the performers because they just that's where they make their money, and um, the same goes for the film industry. You know, being being shut down the way it has. So I don't know. I'm just if I I you know, I hear this every day. People say, "Well, I'm all right. You know, we're we're fine." Um, where we are, but I feel for other people, and I feel like I'm saying that right now. But frankly, I don't know. We're we're not all right. Um, none of us are all right. Uh, we might be thankful and healthy, but this is affecting each and every one of us, one way or another. And um, we really have to be. Res- really really have to be responsible about this and it is so difficult for people to uh to to wrap their head around what responsible means if you're 30 years old it, it, it you have a different feeling about that than if you're 60 years old um and i understand and we're you know society is is hemorrhaging everywhere right now in its attempt to grapple with this and it's exposed a lot of, of of weakness in our in our capitalist system, um, and that I think that's important. I don't. I hope we take something from it, but there seems to be, um, you know, like the expo- right now, the fact that uh, basic income and and. And racial issues, and and all the uh, these issues are are at raw nerves. They're being exposed by this pandemic, and it's it's um, you know pick your pick where this all fits you. But um, it's a destabilizing effect, you know, and it's it's exposing in, in, in economic inequality. 
you know, on the way our society is functioning. And um, look at, let's say, class disparity uh, or systemic racism, militarization of police. Like, uh, it's, it's all part of this pandemic uh, situation that we find ourselves in. And I just... I just hope that we can, um, we collectively can come out with something and that we have the patience to, uh, to last and come out with positive results. But, um, from my perspective and how it affects my life, it's, it's within the performing arts. And, um, you know, I, we will see better days, but, but it's affected us all. Absolutely. I wish I had an answer right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, we all do. I, I agree. But on a lighter note, if I can go yeah, with I'm that, sorry. one, one or two do. things. No, I'm just it's, saying, it's trying just to turn it. Yeah. The time. Yeah. No, exactly. And you have to think about it and remember where, what it's all about and why we're doing what we're doing. Um, and, and the rest will follow. We try to stay positive, keep going, and, and hope for the best. But you have, uh, we're recording this on August 19th. You have a. Big birthday coming up on the twenty third. Any plans for that? <laughs> there was a great article in the New Yorker um, under the shouts and shouts and murmurs section, that, uh, and it was all about uh, this year. From I'm canceling my birthday, <laughs> and if you get a chance to look it up, look it up. It's absolutely hilarious. I'm not sure who wrote it. If it was David Sedaris, possibly, but. It basically, he goes through how, under any no under no circumstances, does he want to celebrate his birthday this year. So I sent that out to my family and friends, and basically, it goes through him saying, "So for the parade of cars, I, I decided I only want these models. Um, you know, for the Zoom celebration, I'm only asking that you wear these types of vintage shirts." And he goes through all the different variations of celebration that we're going through through this pandemic and saying, but, but, but seriously, it means nothing. I don't want to have a birthday. So I sent that out to everybody saying, basically, I want to have a birthday, but, but I'm not going to have one this year. You know, it's just not going to work out. So um, it'll be memorable. It'll be a small celebration with my bubble and, uh, and, uh, I'll never forget it. You know, I'll be 60. I was born in 1960 and it'll be in my backyard with probably the same eight to 10 faces I've been staring at for the past six months. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to beg them to come because they probably all hate me by now. But if I pay for everything, I'm sure I can get them to at least come and eat and drink. So, um, that's probably what I'll be doing. But, uh, it will be unforgettable as it's been for for everybody this year. Now rewinding, we've all we've all had a birthday, <laughs> mm-hmm. or will have had one. Now rewinding back to happier times and stuff like that with the conventions, you got to do your first you know convention in recent memory at the LA Comic Con last year, and with this you know it's your first con since the '90s. It's a lot more memorable because you're seeing more people talking to you about your involvement with X Men. 
what were some of your most memorable encounters during that? And like any particular fan interaction stand out for you? Um, yeah, I, I, I think one thing that there's certain demographic of people, I believe that, uh, comprise the majority of attendees at, at those events. And I guess I was trying to say that before is that what I found refreshing is that, um, I found that there were a lot of, I would say socially awkward people, just uncomfortable socially, maybe not confident socially, but extremely intelligent and, and, and very loyal to their, their interest and their hobby, which was the comic con world um, and all aspects of it. Um, and so all my interactions were interesting for that reason, because I personally am not a comic con attendee type person. Um, but, you know, what it did was take the curse for me off of uh, the, the old William Shatner. Skit where he said, <laughs> get you people get a life. And I thought, from the outside, that was funny. But actually, if you spend some time inside, you realize, geez, I wish, maybe I wish I knew more about this. Right. Um, what, a, what a journey this is. What, a, what an interesting hobby. Now, some of the experiences I had were with um, a couple of kids that were clearly on the spectrum. I would say young adults. Um, had difficulty making eye contact and, and difficulty expressing themselves or they were so verbose that um, it was overwhelming. But uh, a couple of those people attended with, clearly it was uh, their parents. Um, and in that interaction with the individual, I'd glance up to the parents and I could see in the parents' eyes I don't know how to explain this, that how much they, why they were there with that child. And they were looking at me thinking, are you thinking this kid's a weirdo or are you getting, are you getting what? The message you're trying to say. You love him as much as we do. Um, Those are powerful moments when you see that. those were some interesting interactions. Others to me were meeting people that have this incredible uh, talent in, in, you know, in drawing and, in and animation. Um, some of the, the booths and tables that, that are set up at those and the talent behind those, uh, those tables that, that, that was, that was another experience. Uh, and then I've had a couple, uh, situations, that had been very emotional with, um, with a young guy that came up and had a picture of his sister and me in the middle and him. And they were about nine years old. She was probably 12 and he was about nine or something. And he said, um, I'll never forget this. We were with my, my dad and we took this picture and you took the time and I've always had this picture. And then they, you know, go on to say, um, and it always reminds me of my dad because he, he just died last month or, you know, he, he passed away and this is important to us. And we remember that time. 
these are the little things that I think every uh, person that that is in entertainment can relate to that happens along the way that has an effect on you that you have no idea when you're performing has that kind of effect. So um, I walked away from from that thinking, you know, I'll do this again. I'll do it again. I, I, it, it was, it's become a whole different uh, experience for me than it was back in the 90s when I did it the first couple of times. And I think the, the very first one I ever did, I got stiffed for mm-hmm. half of the money that they were going to pay me. So oh. that wasn't a very good experience. Not a good start, and, no. No. And then um, the second one, I got arrested on a plane. What? Uh, <laughs> going to Chicago and I was with my wife and um, the Chicago police, you know, are all dressed in black and they have all of their gear on the outside of their bodies. They're very, they all look like legal hell's angels. (laughs) But um, they, uh, yeah, I I got into a bit of an altercation with the male flight attendant um, and got out of my seat when I wasn't supposed to when we landed and he wanted to have me arrested and long story short it was all fine two of the cops were fans of kung fu so they were they were really nice to us my wife was handing out chocolates to them. But, um, okay okay where did the chocolate come from well well we were gonna go do this convention in chicago and i had been asked to uh fly from at the time from Toronto to Chicago. And at the time, Karen, we, we have four children. And at the time we had three and they were all two years apart. We we little ones in the household and we never got to go out. We used to sit in the car in the, in the garage and drink a beer and have a cigarette back then. Or I would, and, but we wouldn't leave the garage. We'd have the baby monitor in the garage so we could hear it. And we pretend we just put on tunes and we pretend we went somewhere like we could never get out. And then I was working on Kung Fu all the time, um, filming long hours. So we had this one weekend where we got help uh, within the family to take care of the kids. And so Karen and I were going to get a chance to get away to Chicago to go to this convention. And because I got stiffed at the first convention I did, I told the people from Chicago, I want the money when I get off the plane. Uh, Would you pick me up? And they said, sure, fine, no problem. So we got on the plane and we departed Toronto. And we were in first class. But I paid for the extra ticket because it was a last-minute adventure that that Karen could go. So I I only had one ticket paid for by the convention. I, I, I bought the other ticket. And it cost me Toronto to Chicago, which is like an hour and a half flight or something. It cost me at the time 1200 bucks. And so I, I got on the plane and I heard the guy behind me say, boy, you know, we're going to land soon. We haven't had a drink. I wish we could get a drink. And I thought, yeah, exactly. You know, we're in business class. Like, aren't we supposed to get business class treatment or something? Mm-hmm. So I, I got up out of my seat and I went up to the to the steward, the male flight attendant, and I said, can we get a, can we get a drink? And he said, I, he was fixing the coffee maker. He said, I'm, try, I'm busy at the moment. 
please go back to your seat. I said, well, we're going to land soon. He said, well, what would you like? I said, I don't, I, I'm, whatever drinks we wanted. So he brought these two drinks and he brought the guy one behind me who was now satisfied. And then we landed and the pilot came on the air and he said, uh, the good news is we're a half an hour early, but the bad news is we're going to have to sit here on the runway until we can taxi in. And I heard the guy behind me say, oh, I wouldn't mind another drink. And I thought, yeah, exactly. So I got up out of my seat. I went up to the guy. And I said to the store, can we get another drink back here? Well, since we're going to be sitting on the tarmac. And the guy freaked out. And he said very loudly, get back to your seat immediately. He knew my name, Mr. Potter. And he said, uh, uh, and I said, well, I just, I just, I paid 1200 bucks for this ticket. I wouldn't mind another drink. And he said, uh, I'm only going to ask you one more time. Get back to your seat immediately, Mr. Potter. You're breaking an international airline code or something. So everybody now has heard this. And I sit sheepishly back down in my chair. And um, he comes up. He, go, he goes into the uh, pilot's cabin, comes back out, makes a couple of announcements like to somebody else. I hear him talking away. And he comes in and says, uh, Mr. Potter, please remain in your seat when we, when we, uh, you know, dock this plane. You are being charged with an international offense of delaying an airline flight. And um, the Chicago police will be here to escort you off the plane. I'm like, <laughs> what? Honestly, I couldn't believe it. So sure enough, five Chicago cops came on that plane. And pulled my wife and I aside, took us up the tunnel. And there we stood while the whole plane deboarded past us, thinking we were, God knows what they were thinking. Whatever they were thinking, it wasn't good. And in my arms, my wife had these chocolates that had been made by somebody on the Kung Fu art department whose family owned a candy company. And they were chocolates with my picture on them. <laughs> and they, they were edible. And they were very nicely wrapped. And so my, my wife, Karen, was handing them out to people as they were passing us to try to take the curse off the situation. And I gave a cop's one. And so the guy said, you're the guy from Kung Fu. I said, yeah. He said, oh, I love that. You know, my kids watch that show all the time. He said, um, look, I don't know what's going to happen here. He said, but this guy decides to press charges. You're going to be charged. We've got to take you downtown. and you, You're facing a $10,000 fine. Uh, and I, I'm like, how, how could this be happening? This guy freaked out on me. And I said, I, I did get up out of my seat, but I, said, I didn't threaten him or anything. So he said, well, we're going to have to see what they want to do. So uh, we wait at the end of this tunnel, and there through the plexiglass, or the thick glass, they've got me on one side, and up comes this guy, the male steward, airline, what do you call him, flight attendant, and he said, he's, he's looking, staring at me, and the um, cop's talking to him, and finally he comes to my side of the glass, and he says, all right, they're not going to press charges, you're free to go. And But uh, he would prefer... He points to the guy. He said he'd prefer that you never fly Air Canada again. And I said, 
I said, don't effing worry. I never will. <laughs> so as they turn around, we walk up out the rest of the tunnel, out the door, and there are the people from the convention who just witnessed this whole thing, standing there with my box of money. To, to uh, They must be thinking, you know, what do, what do we what do we just buy? What, what are we paying for here? This guy has been escorted off the plane. And um, anyway, that was my second experience. So I decided I'm never going to do one of these things again. It's just I'm I'm too busy. It takes up my weekend, and I haven't had a good experience. So the moral of the story was about a month later, I'm on set. David Carradine, who was always very enigmatic and very uh, you know, like a tiger, you could wild tiger. You could pet him one day or the next day. He may take your hand off. Depends. Depended how uh, his weekend, how, how things were going with him. He, um, he, he so David said, uh, "Oh, I'm flying down to Florida with this weekend to do some appearance." And I said, oh, are you going to fly Air Canada? He said, no, hell no. He said, I'll never fly them again. The last time I flew with them, I got into such a thing, and they tried to arrest me. And I said, what? And all of a sudden, it hit me. And I realized people back then always thought that I was David's son because I played his son on television. And, and a lot of people would say that to me, like off camera. They would say, you know, where's your dad? How's your dad? Um, as if I was his real son. Hmm. And somehow, I, I truly believe I was guilty by association and that this reaction that this guy had had, had uh, something to do with uh, an interaction David had had because he was always getting in trouble in a big way um, in his travels and journeys. And uh, it just... I, I, anyway, that's my, that was my last convention that I ever decided to do until I did the LA one. And I can say that nothing went, nothing like that ever happened. That's the LA convention. Do for a good experience. I, um, I, Chris, I want to thank you, um, as we all do for, for your time, taking a a lot of time to talk to us about a lot of stuff. And I just want to possibly wrap up with one request and not necessarily for me, but I think it would be kind of really cool if we could have you slip into a little gambit, and uh, and with a special nod to to Diana to Dico there in California who was really anxious and nervous and wasn't sure if she was going to be on the phone. Can you hear me? Okay, I got the air conditioner running because it's like a hundred degrees here. I don't want to make this call any hotter. But if you can do a little gambit and and kind of woo or, or make her swoon a little. Well, die. You know what they say? Where I come from, we always kiss the bride, but we always kiss the bridesmaids too. Good to have you at the wedding. Guy? Did you hear that? I just died. I was waiting for the thud to hit the floor. <laughs> <laughs> Boys, there's always more gators in the bay. <laughs> I can hear the smile on her face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my word. Okay. Well, Sorry, it's 110 over there now. Someone's got the vapors. Yeah. We'll try yeah, to stay cool, Chef. 
Okay, boys, I got to go. Thank you. Chris, it was I mean, an absolute pleasure and honor. Uh, before you go, how can people get a hold of you on uh, social media and all that stuff? I don't do any social media at all. Smart so man. You can't get a hold of me. Sorry. I, everyone else can write the narrative. No but, problem. Um, Keep this episode in the archives. It's a, it's a definite uh, one of a kind. <laughs> For the Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Dyko. I'm Chris Potter. And I'm Eddie Wilson, Excelsior. Here's Obsessed with Marvel, this episode, August 19th, 2020. Thanks again to Chris Potter for staying so long with us, Gambit and otherwise. But Daiko is with us too, and thanks for sticking around as well. My pleasure. We'll do our best, or mediocrity at best. Question number 694, who is Dark Devil? In Spider-Girl, the choices are Ben Riley's son, Riley Tyne, Daredevil, the host of Zarathos, or all three characters in one body. I'll read it again. Who is Dark Devil in Spider-Girl? Ben Riley's son, Riley Tyne, Daredevil, the host of Zarathos, or all three characters in one body? Oh. You don't know. Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh, I'm going to go with all three. Yeah, it does seem like that, doesn't it? See, I was going to try and help you out there, Daiko, because this book tends to lean towards, if it's an all of the above kind of thing, then that's what you go with. So let's try letter D. That is correct. That's a good start. I like that sound. Okay, let the computer (laughs) chip think, and we go to the next question. We'll try for best of three, or maybe four if we're up for it. Yeah, probably. Okay. And the question is 1,318. Actually, no, the question is a DC character, Eddie. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Who are the witch breed? Is it, or are they, the witches and warlocks of New Salem, human servants of the Angari, the X-Men in Marvel 1602, or demonic beings led by Nastrith? I said that wrong. Oh, but Nazareth, I whatever. love that band. That's love it. stinks. <laughs> love stinks. Okay, who are the witch breed? The witches and warlocks of New Salem, human service, human servants human of services. the Angari, the X-Men in Marvel 1602, or demonic beings led by Nastareth? No, I'm changing my answer. I was going to say B. You're gonna s- the human servants? Yeah. Okay, Peter? I like the way Die thinks. You like B. Okay. That's wrong, yeah, unfortunately, I should know because I did read 1602, but I don't know if there was more than one uh, little run on that. All right, so for lack of not knowing anything else, I'll <laughs> go with letter B, like you're saying. And no, the answer is C, the X-Men in Marvel 1602. Shame on me. Shame on you. Yeah. All right. One fool me two. once, fool me twice. Eat some chicken and rice. Uh, roll the dice. Ain't that nice. A lot of kids in elementary school, they had lice. Oh. Oh. Who were the girls of England? Spice. Boo. <laughs> boo, Eddie Wilson, boo. If you want to be my... Okay. I don't know. <laughs> I appreciate the offer and the gesture. See, Peter would reach over here to turn off my mic. I sure would. <laughs> All right. One more. Two, four, five, nine. How do we appreciate? You're wrong. How does Super Rabbit gain his superpowers? I'm thinking of Captain Carrot and the Amazing Zoo Crew, but okay. 
not. By drinking a secret potion. By rubbing his magic ring. <laughs> oh, that was going a completely different direction, I'll be completely correct. honest. Whoa. By reciting a secret formula or by shouting a magic word. How does Super Rabbit gain his superpowers? Again, by drinking a secret potion, by rubbing his magic ring, by reciting a secret formula, or by shouting a magic word. I feel like the magic word one is kind of an option. Like, it feels like that's going to be, like, their, you know, response to Shazam and Captain yeah, Marvel. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. <sighs> okay. And it's like, hey, this is super, you know, you sued him over Superman. Ha, 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 guy. I think that I think there was a secret formula for a different character, but let's try letter D, magic word. No, <laughs> the answer is by rubbing his magic ring. Mm, kinky. <laughs> Figures, right? Okay, so we're only one for three. I think we need to try a fourth one and just try to save face. Fourth world. At least we're not on TV medium or anything like that, so we, face is a, optional. Oh, Eddie. 1016, and it is who was not one of Tony Stark's employees? Tony Danza. Ch- Choice well, true. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about any of these. Uh, just about Yvette Avril, Doctor Jose Santini, Felix, <laughs> sorry, Felix Alvarez, or Doctor Erica Sondheim, who was not one of Tony Stark's employees. Felix Alvarez, I've heard his name before. Okay, with Tony. Yvette so. Avril, Doctor Jose Santini, Felix Alvarez, or Doctor Erica Sondheim. So it's not Brian Alvarez. It's not Felix. Him too. Felix? What do you think, Daiko? I think I'm going to say Felix. You are going to say Felix? Okay. Hmm. Peter, you're thinking... You know what? Let's give that a try. We're going to... I'm going along. I was thinking Yvette myself just because I don't know why, but... No, it's not Felix. It is Dr. Jose Santini. Uh, You know what? Let's do one more. Oh, really? I don't know. That's like really, to really rub it in, we're maybe, one for four. Maybe, maybe I'll get one. What? <laughs> okay. It's like All Superman right. Victor, or Superman Rescues, or Spider-Man Rescues. There we go. Wow, I botched that. Everybody gets one. Question. <laughs> Family guy. 1741, who was Arm the bark. creature team on Tales of Atlantis in Submariner? Ah, son of a bitch. 62 to 66. <laughs> who was the creative team? Tales of Atlantis. Oh. Oh. Submariner 62 to 66, which is at the end of the run, which is about 72, I think. It, I think it went up to that, I, I believe. Was it Roy Thomas and Bill Everett, Steve Gerber and Don Heck, Steve Gerber and Howard Chaikin, or Roy Thomas and John Rashima? I know it is not Chaikin. Chaikin okay. is not involved. All right. Again, Tales of Atlantis, Submariner 62 to 66. This is the year 1973. Who was the creative team? Roy Thomas and Bill Everett. Steve Gerber and Don Heck, Steve Gerber and Howard Chaikin, Roy Thomas and John Bashima. All right. I, I don't I, think Roy the Boy and John have ever teamed up. I but, wanted to say that, but all right. Um, a doesn't make sense. For some reason, I don't see Bill Everett being on that title. Wasn't Bill Everett dies? He, isn't he the co-creator of uh, Daredevil? Not Bill sure. Everett? Yeah, because that name sounds really familiar. I was just reading some Miller last night, and like they show Daredevil created by... Blah, blah, blah. Okay. I think it's Lee and Everett. So he was, wouldn't have been involved around that time. I want to go with B, Gerber and... Gerber and Heck? It feels like that he would have te- teamed with him on that. Because mm-hmm. this is like a pre-Howard the Duck era for uh, Steve. Was Everett A? Was he part of A? Wait, say that again? Everett what? Was Everett part of answer A? Everett and Roy Thomas. Yeah, I'm going to go with that. You want A. 
I'm going to take Daiko's answer in letter A. Let's see. No, the answer no? is <gasps> Steve Gerber and Howard Chaikin. Really? That's what it says. That's what it says. Because for me, I've been on like a big Howard Chaikin kick with American Flag and stuff like that. And like, I'm looking up his stuff. I didn't know he did See, stuff. This with is Roy why we should have had Howard Chaikin on an episode already, but we will. I'm hoping he still day. wants to. One day. Okay. One for five. Don't and bury the lead, Eddie. Let's just get out. <laughs> Thank you.